On today's episode, we're diving deep with a senior leader in college athletics on his leadership style and lessons from his career. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Quick plug before we get to our guest introduction today. If you're focused on guest experience or employee experience, definitely go check out our email newsletter. As we work with pro teams and college athletic departments around the country, we're taking the lessons that we learn from our experiments and our projects, and we're putting those insights into the newsletter. A couple of times per week, you'll get everything from the articles and content that are inspiring us to innovate, as well as new tools that we're using and loving. If you get value from this show, you're going to love the newsletter. To sign up, head to engagementpartners.com backslash newsletter. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we try to figure out what are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the experiments that they're running? What are the principles that have driven success throughout their career? And then we take all those things and we apply them to the world of sports and entertainment. Now, right now, we are in the middle of a series that we're calling College Leaders, where we sit down with different athletic directors uh, and senior leaders in the college landscape to figure out some of their leadership styles, trends they're paying attention to, experiments they're running, et cetera. But really, the focus is on college leaders. And a lot of that is because at Engagement, we spend a lot of time working with college athletic departments on things like culture, customer experience, and innovation. And so as we sit down with some of these leaders, some of them are leaders that we've worked with before like Troy, uh, where we worked with him and his team at Tulane a couple years ago on a project to better understand the marketplace that they were in and, and how people were spending discretionary income on entertainment so that way we could better adjust our offerings to them. Uh, and other times there are leaders that we'd love to work with and we haven't worked with yet. Uh, but either way, we see them as innovators in the industry. And so we want to have them on the show to highlight some of the great things about them. So hopefully you listen to these episodes and have some takeaways from them. So a uh, little bit about Troy before we jump into this episode with him. Uh, Troy is the Ben Wiener Director of Athletics at Tulane, where he served in that role for really the last five years or so. And in that time, he's hired nine head coaches. He's revamped the senior management team. He's increased fundraising. He's enhanced the student athlete and the fan experience, which obviously is important to us. Uh, some of Troy's biggest accomplishments in the office over the past five years include leading student athletes to an all-time high grade point average in the fall semester last year. And he, they've seen massive growth in graduation success rates and academic progress rates. So a lot of focus on the student athletes for Troy and his team. Uh, under his leadership, Tulane Tulane Athletics has raised over $104 million. It's seen its licensing revenue triple through the reintroduction of their Angry Wave logo, which I think everybody loves. Uh, Troy and his team have led uh, the whole department to big accomplishments in the area of community involvement, social justice, and now NIL. Troy's leadership has been recognized throughout the industry, where he's been named to several influential industry groups, one of which was really recent. Uh, some of those groups include NCAA Football Competition Committee, where he currently serves as the chair, Football Oversight Committee, Division I Wrestling Committee, and a ton more. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his role in the NCAA Constitution Committee uh, in this episode because it was so recent and it's such a cool role. 
Troy, though, he's also a really big family man, which is super important to me. And we definitely get into how Troy balances all this work and accomplishments and still stays dedicated to serving his family. So a lot of lessons in here that Troy's going to unpack for us. Uh, but most of all, I kind of want to set the scene for when we did this interview. Right now, Troy and his team are preparing for one of the biggest events in recent Tulane athletics history, where number two Oklahoma is coming to play at Tulane's football venue, Yulman Stadium. And to set the tone for the stadium, or not to set the tone for the stadium, to set the tone for the episode, I should say, we recorded this episode Friday, August 13th, less than 24 hours after Troy and his team announced that they would require a negative COVID test or proof of vaccine to attend events. Really the first people in, in Division One college athletics to make that announcement. And I, I know that we're going to see a ripple effect of other people making that same decision as COVID-19 starts to pick up again. Um, so a lot of lessons here to unpack, uh, especially around that first one. We kick it off talking about the COVID vaccines, some of the decisions that they've made around the policies. But for us, really, we talk about some of the customer experience implications for it and how that decision impacts brand loyalty. So uh, we're going to focus a lot on uh, on Troy's leadership style, uh, but it's going to be a great episode if you're looking to be an aspiring leader, if you're currently a senior leader making trying to make the move to that top role. A uh, lot of great lessons in here with Troy. So without further ado... Let's get into it. Troy, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, David. Long time, long time. No see, no talk. But uh, it's been that way with a lot of people for the last 18 months. I haven't seen them. I haven't talked to them. Uh, we, we had our first function back uh, uh, and, and everyone still was masked. And I said, you know, I've, I've, it's hard to recognize people just by their eyes. Uh, you know, so we're getting more normal, but we're not quite there yet. That, that's what it's been, but I'm glad that you were able to take some time out today to talk to us about what's going on down in New Orleans and at Tulane, and specifically diving into some of your leadership style, uh, leadership lessons that you've learned along your journey and wisdom that you want to impart on the industry. So um, let, let's jump into it. I mean, we're recording this on, what's today? Friday the 13th of August. So yesterday, uh, you guys just had a big announcement down at Tulane. I think we we would be doing everybody an injustice if we didn't talk about two seconds about what your morning's been like and how you guys have dealt with uh, the decision that you guys came out with yesterday. Well, until you just said it was Friday the 13th, I didn't put two and two together. <laughs> but today has been Friday the 13th in every way. It could be Friday the 13th. Uh, you know, after announcing yesterday that you were going to have to be vaccinated or show a negative test to come to a football game. And of course, we open with Oklahoma here, which is a game of the magnitude that this stadium has never had and, and really Tulane historically maybe has never had as they're ranked second or third in the country. And so, you know, this morning it's, it's everyone who's opposed to vaccine uh, and, and uh, uh, is mad at the world because there's a pandemic. They've all either found my phone number or my, uh, uh, my email address. And, and as, as you know, it's, well, that's the case. It is Friday the 13th today. So this recording this is really a nice break because I don't have to take any calls and I don't have to read any email for a while. So how did, how did you guys come to the decision? And, and I'm curious as to how on these phone calls, how you're alleviating some of these fears, because um, I, I think for us, right, one of the most overlooked things in the customer experience is at the end of the day, if it's not safe, it doesn't matter how nice we are to you. And, and we've got, I've gotten into debates with that with different te marketing teams and whatnot where they're like, oh, courtesy is the most important thing. And I'm like, guys, 
it's safety is the most important thing. So I'm, I'm curious, talk me through some of how you're messaging this with people that are calling in and, and are upset. Well, first, you know, that this I'm actually thankful for how this has played out. Uh, we made the decision institutionally on Monday that we were going to do this uh, on Tuesday as we're starting to coordinate a little bit. And I was talking to the Saints uh, because, you know, I, if we were doing one thing, the Saints were doing another, you know, what was what was that going to cause? But along the way, the city then kind of decided, hey, we're going to do this across the board. So we sat on it for a few days until the city was ready to make a blanket announcement. So, you know, you can say, well, I can point at the city right now and say it's it's their fault. But I, I, I'm more taking the approach that that this is this is a community thing. Now, this is not a two lane thing. This is a community thing, even though you know Tulane was was uh, was ready to go with it. You know, and last night when when the word broke and, and along the way this week, I had drawn a land, line in the sand with my staff and said, we're not going to offer refunds. Legally, we don't have to, uh, you know, and, and I didn't think really morally or even from a customer service standpoint is something that we needed to do for anybody. Get a negative test, uh, you know, uh, contribute to the public health, get a vaccine. And uh, given the response so far, uh, even last night and then today, I just just thought, you know what, um, it, it isn't worth anyone's heartache and headache if if somebody is that offended uh, that that you know that you can't tread on on everyone else's environment uh, in, in any way you want to uh, give them their money back. We'll sell the ticket. The stadium's going to be sold out. Uh, uh, we'll sell the ticket to somebody else who wants to be here and wants to yeah. to be here in, in in the appropriate condition. And you know what, if we don't. It's a small price to pay. Uh, you know, no one wants to be the event or the reason that 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 other people got sick. And at the same yeah. time, you know, we want to have these games, you know, uh, for those who've for those who've done what they needed to do to try to protect their health and others health. You know, it, it, it's not fair to them to say you can't be a part of this. So we, we've we've taken a different tack this morning already and just said, you know, if you want your money back, you get your money back and. And let's move forward with people that want to be here. Good, good on you guys. I mean, that you you made a decision right there as a as a leader that I think a lot of people in any industry. Uh, sometimes we we really do this in sports, especially after a year coming out that we just had, where people make the decision based on the bottom line and the short term, and not thinking about the long term implications, right? And I, I think by you get you guys giving those refunds or giving those options for refunds, if somebody really really wants it. I think that's going to come out to play in your favor in the in the long run because you're showing them that hey, look, we care if you're if you're uncomfortable with it, we care about you. We care about those feelings. We still want you to be a fan of Tulane. We understand though. Here you go. Here's your money back. Otherwise, I think it does long term damage. So good on you guys for making that courageous decision. No, I I agree totally with you. And, and there's no sense in in making enemies, uh, you know, over a, a situation that's that's hard and and difficult for everybody. All right. Well, so let's let's shift gears enough on on COVID and, and vaccines. Uh, you just got named to the NCAA Constitution Committee. Congratulations. Um, talk to us a little bit about that committee, the role that you'll play and and why, how that came about. It, it's it's a constitution. It's a, it's a committee. I think a lot of people have never even heard of maybe in the industry. Well, I would say it's it, it's an opportunity of a career uh, of a lifetime. You know, reinventing the NCAA and its and its organizational structure. You know, as long as we're truly going to do that, you know, and we have the committee hasn't met yet, but it, you know that's that's the stated goal. 
you know, how, how are we going to reinvent our organization and our structure to operate successfully, uh, you know, going forward? Forget about what's happened up till now. You know, it's a lot of things have happened in the last few years. Let's redefine ourselves. You know, again, uh, it, it's a it's amazing opportunity. I, you know, I look at the committee and I know I'm the only group of five uh, uh, athletic director or really representative on there. Uh, it's it's a small group uh, that's trying to represent a lot of people. Uh, you know, it's it's something that's going to call for uh, assessing everything from 30,000 feet, but knowing quickly uh, uh, from down in the weeds whether it's 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 actually uh, oper- you can operationalize what you want to do. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be a great mental challenge, uh, a mental test, uh, you know, and to get on the committee, as I, as I said, I, I think it's, you know, it, I'll probably never uh, have an opportunity that is more significant or a committee that has more stature uh, than this one. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I have a lot of personal pride, but really, I think a lot of institutional pride because Tulane has a voice at that table. The American Athletic Conference has a voice at that table. And and the group of five has a voice at that table. So it's a, it is a responsibility that's fairly significant in my mind as well. Well, and, and I, I think of, of all times to be on that committee, right? I mean, Twitter is filled with people saying, is the NCAA even going to exist in its current capacity in three to five years, right? And so to be able to, to shape what that future looks like, incredible honor um, and, and well-deserved to be on that. Well, you know, the, the NCAA is the only organization whose public approval rating is lower than Congress's. So, you know, there's and not that you do what you do or the organization exists uh, for public approval. Uh, you know, in, in this business, you make decisions all the time that that half the people agree with, half the people aren't going to agree with. But, you know, get, getting a, uh, an organization that has the credibility or respect and regard that you can make those decisions and people will understand and, and, and know that you're making a decision that's in the interest of students, the interest of, of sport in general. Uh, that's, that's where we need to go. Um, I have a question just about committees as a, as a whole, I think as an athletic director, right? A lot of times, and, and it's probably different, a little bit different for a group of five school because you have a smaller staff, but certainly for some of the power five D one schools, as you get to be that senior leader sitting in the chair, you kind of get a little bit more removed from the day-to-day operations in the department and you're more focused on whether it be fundraising, brand building, overall culture. Um, oftentimes, like you, you're, you're in a spot where you get to serve on committees. How do you balance the role of a committee versus running the department? How much time do you feel like you might spend on this committee? Um, talk to us a little bit about some of that balance, if you will. I've always been curious yeah. about that. Well, you know, this particular committee, uh, you know, it's it's going to be a full day commitment every day or every week uh, the entire fall. Uh, a lot of those days are likely to be in Indianapolis. Rep. One day per week, a full day? One full blocked week. out. Okay. Got it. One full day is blocked out per week. Uh, and a lot of those are going to be in Indianapolis, which means there's going to be travel on either side of it. Uh, you know, I uh, when the invitation came, I went to my president and said, I just want you to know, uh, you know, I'm, I may not be at cabinet meetings, uh, depending on when the day falls. Uh, and I, the one thing that I've got right now uh, here that I've never had here is, or, or any place I've been in a division where I'd like director 14 years. And I, I ran a high school association for, for six. So it's really, you know, 20 consecutive years. I've got the best team with me that, that I worry less about not being here. And I worry less about, 
uh, being inaccessible than I've ever worried. You know, you can't you can't do all this work in in your first year in a job. You know, I I'm in my uh, in my sixth year. Uh, you know, I've I've got the group assembled, a, a really good leadership team with me that I know that I can step out and do some of these things and have full confidence that everything's running probably better without me, uh, frankly. Uh, <laughs> and you know, that's that's as important of a job for a leader as anything, right? Is to, is to make sure that that the the team you surround yourself with is is every bit as good, if not better, than you are. Well, that is a perfect transition to set us up for the rest of the conversation. Let's get into some of the fun stuff around your leadership style, uh, uncommon beliefs, et cetera. Uh, and, and let's just run with it and see where it goes. Uh, so feel free to punt on any questions. Uh, we have so many of these. Um, but let's get going. Let, let's start with an easy one or maybe not an easy one. Okay. But what's a purchase of $100 or less that has positively impacted your life in the last six months? So we're going to get into the leadership, but I want to start getting to know you a little bit better. Readers. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, it's time for cheaters. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not a, a big reader, but I'm, I'm reading the NCAA constitution up one side and down the other right now. I mean, that's just, that's yeah. a little goofy thing. Uh, I would, I would tell you, and now again, this is not tied to work at all, but you know, I, I have a, a, a little, uh, vacation house back up in Iowa where I'm from. I lived every day of my life in Iowa before I came here on a lake. And between that lake and living in New Orleans, the mosquitoes um, are, are frequent visitors. We found this little thing, gosh, it's, it's like called bite away. Okay. And it's like 39 bucks, but it, 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 you put it on a mosquito bite and you, you, and it turns out and it heats up and you take it off and you don't even know you got the bite. And, and I'm a man, when I get mosquito bites, I itch like crazy. This thing is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. I haven't had a mosquito bite that's bothered me. So that has changed my life. I love it. I, I was not expecting to put a, a, a link in the show notes to a mosquito repellent, but you know what? We're going to do it. Uh, so we'll, we'll put it in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it's called bite away, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, and I like to be outdoors. I, even, even in the heat and humidity here, I, I would be outdoors every minute of the day if I could. Well, I think I think it's important for the role that so. you're in. I mean, again, as you as you guys and all of us move so fast in college athletics, I think this comes with the work life balance, right? I mean, I'm I'm taking a vacation today, and here I am doing doing the podcast, but I'm at the lake, and I'm, at least I'm outside. So I hear you there. Um, well, let, let's yeah. let's move into a little bit a uh, little bit more leadership focused one. I mean, how how is a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have kind of a, a favorite failure of yours? And let's hear the story. Uh, well, a lot, there's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, it's funny. We just asked, we had a staff retreat at my, with my leadership team. And I asked this question, uh, this very question of them. And, and I had never had to answer it before. But, you know, my answer to them was, uh, I, I had been at the athletic director at Northern Iowa for six months and they were running a big deficit when I walked in and, and it was 2008 and the financial crisis hit and state aid was cut. I had a 20% reversion in my budget and it meant I was dropping a sport mm. and, and I, and I dropped baseball and, you know, I, I would, I would go back probably and, and, uh, you know, there's some things along the way that I might've done differently, but now that I've been in this role for 14 years, if the same situation presented itself today, I would do something different. I probably would have been able to save the sport. I didn't know at the time enough about uh, 
how uh, collegiate finance work, not just athletics, but but finance of the institution in general, uh, finance, uh, state aid. I didn't, I, and I wasn't able to to use numbers enough to sell the case for why financially, net net, we were going to be down more if we dropped the sport than than if we stayed pat, uh, stood pat, and and uh, knowing that you know there might have been some ways that I could have cajoled and convinced my leadership at the university that I could have bought some more time, you know, and and at the time it felt like something that absolutely had to be done, but today I look back on it and say you know. It was a failure because I now know there might have been some other things I could have done at the time uh, that wouldn't resulted in it. I think, you know, we just went through a lot of sports being dropped across the country. And I think mm-hmm. anyone that's ever been through that would tell you, uh, you know, you, you're in this job to create opportunity and, and, you know, taking away opportunity, contracting opportunity from from you know 18 to 21 year olds 22 year olds is not what any of us got in this job for there's a fiduciary responsibility we have but but the holistic responsibility is really why we why we all wanted to do this and it you know i failed it now that there might not have been another option you know at the time but looking back on it i i would do things differently today and i said that that's a lesson when as I told my staff, the lesson from that is every time you come up with something that, that feels like you're at a cliff and there is nothing else to do and you got to either push somebody or push your jump yourself off the cliff, you know, take a step back and say, no, 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 let's completely rethink this mm. and let's try to find a way before we have to, you know, do draconian things. Yeah. Let's try to see if we can't find a way. And if you look right now at a lot of the sports that were dropped this past fall, a lot of them have been reinstated. And, and you know, and, and it's it costs you a lot of capital uh, as as a leader to go through that. Uh, but again, that's that's my favorite failure. Uh, Such a good you know, I, I still have people that troll me over it. Really? Uh, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it's you know, when our baseball team doesn't have success, I'll still have people from my my prior school, uh, a couple that were on the team. Will will troll me, you know. I'm still not supporting baseball. Yeah. Uh, you know that, and that's part of it, and it is what it is. But you know, I've I've learned a lot from that, and and it I've never forgotten it. I still have a baseball jersey from Northern Iowa hanging in my house mm. uh, because I never really want to forget uh, what happened. Wow. I I, th- I think that's a, the way that you put it too around what the lesson actually was from that is is huge. I, I think there's another basic lesson from that, which is like not enough people in college athletics really study the financial models that it takes to to run the organization. I think a lot of times as leaders growing up in the business, you get given a budget and you manage to that budget and that's it. And you don't do the deeper study on how from a financial perspective, you can get creative to find solutions. And so um, a bunch of different lessons in that story. So appreciate you sharing that. Um, all right, let's go to a different one. Uh, in the last five years, what's a new belief or behavior or a habit from a leadership perspective that's most improved your life? I think, oh, uh, you can actually make it not. From I think a when I came to Tulane, so oh, well, there were, well, I would say two things. One, my kids are seven and eight. They were one and two when we came here. And, and so their my role in their lives and their role in my life is completely different. And, and, uh, you know, I've, at least I've been around long enough to know, uh, that I've, I've got to commit that time. I've got to make sure that that relationship, uh, comes first 
even if it only comes for 30 minutes a day, uh, it comes first. So that that's an important thing. But I would tell you professionally, uh, what I had a lot less of when I came to Tulane than I have now is empathy. Um, and, and I think that comes from the the group that I built or here, the team that I built, you know, not a lot of, a lot of people hire people they know. Yeah. I have not hired anybody from my leadership team that I knew. Uh, you know, I, I, I hired skills and needs, not, not people, not comfort. And, and what I learned from them was, was, uh, I, I, am a fairly black and white guy. Uh, I tell it like it is sometimes, uh, not that I not that I lack tact when I do it, but I am direct, and directness is not necessarily uh, a common trait in this business. Uh, I needed to, I, I, they they taught me I needed to learn uh, more empathy and how to show more empathy for situations. How, you know, the, how, how the other oh, go way ahead. I would, yeah, I would in, go ahead. I was going to say the other way I would integrate empathy is is you know. I, yeah, sometimes after after the fifteenth time of, of a student failing a drug test, and with a with a story, and and you know that the story is not right, and the answer and what you know is not right, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, you get a little hardened to it, and you just don't believe things. And sometimes you got to remember every every situation is different, every story is different and unique, and, and you got to have empathy for the person in front of you, and not let it be tainted by what's happened prior to that person getting in front of you for, for leaders that are struggling with some of the same issue around maybe not being as empathetic and maybe they've gotten that feedback from their leaders or their peers or their direct reports. What were some of the tactics that you used or strategies to become more empathetic? Were there classes you took books, you read podcasts you listened to, or was it more just about, I mean, how, how did you become that, that more empathetic leader? I watched people who were empathetic and that for me, that's how I learn is, is watching people. Uh, you know, I, I used to, I love to go to coaching clinics. I'm not a coach. I've never coached, but I like to go to coaching clinics because I understand that's how I get inside of a coach's mind and understand what they're thinking and why they're thinking and what their decision-making is. You know, so I, I like to watch coaches in that setting. You know, I, I, I found people that I thought were, and that, that others felt were empath- uh, had great empathy and watch them work and, and, and then tried to try to apply the things I saw that I liked, that I thought I could apply that wouldn't be fake, uh, in my life. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that's, that's how I feel I was built. Uh, you know, I, I've watched people from the day I worked for Bob Bowlesby as a student, when he was the athletic director at Northern Iowa, when I worked in his office, you know, I, I've, I've watched people and the leaders, the great leaders and, and it's like, I want to take this from them, or I don't want to take that from them because it would be phony to who I am, even mm-hmm. though it works for them, it would be phony to who I am. And, and, you know, that's how you assemble yourself. And, uh, but along the way, you know, recognizing when you got a liability yep. and having a team, you know, nobody walked in my office and said, you are not very empathetic. Uh, but you know, from the things they tell you, you, you're able to understand, eh, maybe I'm not very empathetic. <laughs> Uh, su- such good advice for any upcoming leaders or, or senior leaders trying to develop that skill. Um, let, let's let's shift gears to another question here. What's an unusual leadership practice that you love? Um, I, I I could tee one up for you that something that you already said, but I'm going to leave it open ended for you. What's an unusual leadership practice that you love? Well, I, I and this is interesting. I don't know what's unusual and what's not. 
I will tell you, I haven't, I haven't had the radio on in the car in 10 years. You, uh, you drive in, sil- in car, you drive in silence. That's when, yep. That is crazy. Okay. And, continue. And all I do is think, I think, I think, I think about scenarios. How am I going to handle it? If this happens and things that it might be, you know, what if, what if my, what if my coach quits tomorrow? What would I do? What if, what if, uh, a kid were injured and, and what would I do? And I, I, I think of all these things that most of them have never, ever happened. And most of them are fairly extreme. And most of them, those scenarios are, are what I would consider traumatic. Uh, and, and, but that's how I think through things and, and figure out, try to figure out what that path is before the emergency happens. It's like living in New Orleans, right? We have hurricane. Pl- I have a staff yeah, meeting oh, yeah. with hurricanes in, in a week. You don't have the staff meeting on hurricanes when the hurricane's in the Gulf. You have it now. Uh, and that's that's what I tend to do in the car is just I think I, I, and I play through scenarios uh, of what might happen. When it, that's I mean, I I was in the car for 14 and a half hours driving from Iowa uh, from that lake house. And I didn't have the radio on the entire time. All I did was think about scenarios Troy, and scenario planning. Troy, I don't know if I can trust you as a human being after saying that crazy statement. Um, that I will take that as an unusual leadership practice. Meanwhile, I'm over here like listening it to audio books yeah, on like triple speed. and uh, But I could probably use some of that silence to clear my head and actually sit, think through things some more too because I think – I'm constantly on this content consumption and I need to fill myself with these outside thoughts that I probably don't do enough time thinking and reflecting myself. So I, I love that you brought that to the table. Yeah. Um, and I, and I will, I'm going to give a, a shout out to Chris on your team. I remember we were doing zoom calls all during the pandemic talking about preparation for coming back to the stadiums. And Chris is like, man, this is just one more prep plan that we need to have. He's like, I've got my hurricane prep plan and all that. And he's like, this isn't anything too crazy for us. It's just changing the circumstances. So, uh, shout out to your team. Um, all right, well, let's, let's, oh, go ahead. Well, last, I was, I was going to say it's last night when I'm driving home, knowing that, that we're about to announce this vaccine plan. It was all about how are we going to respond? What are the, what are the potential, uh, uh, scenarios where people are going to come at us on different things and how how to respond uh you know plan ahead of time uh so you don't get caught you know by surprise whenever you can't get caught by surprise i love it um all right let's shift gears to another question what are some bad recommendations that you hear when it comes to leadership maybe especially in college athletics or leadership in general some bad recommendations that you've heard people give about leader being in the chair uh I think way too many people think that that there is a way to lead and that's the way you lead. And and I go back to coaches. You don't coach every kid the same. You don't lead every person the same. There's a there's a consistency to leading the organization. But I motivate my team. Everyone is motivated differently. And it's up to me to know what buttons to push. I see way too many people in here, way too many people, and in, in even some of my young staff that's moving up to where they, they oversee people for the first time, they make the assumption that, one, everybody's wired the same way they are, and thus they should respond the same way that I would respond, and that's not true. You have to figure out how everybody's wired and how do you align those wires and how do you push those buttons to get the most out of every individual. That's what a coach does on a playing field. That's what my, why my football coach has had success. He figures out a way. He manages the team consistently. 
but he managed the, the individual based on what the individual needs. I say sometimes you need a, a kick in the butt, a kiss on the cheek, or just a shoulder to cry on. And, and if, if you just manage by kicking in the butt, you're not going to get the most out of most people. I see way too many people just think, this is how I'm going to lead. I read this book, and this is how I'm going to lead because I admire that. And that doesn't work. Yeah, you, you absolutely, I mean, it's definitely something that we, we learned and taught at Disney. And as we work with schools now, you know, it's part of it is like, we talk about being uh, versatile in your leadership styles, right? And that ultimately, as a leader, your job is to make the people that work for you, your job is, is not to give them work, your job is to clear the obstacles out of the way so that they can be empowered to go do their jobs, what you hired them for. And to do that, People need different obstacles removed. Some people might need this obstacle and other people might need it another way. And so I think knowing and understanding your people and being able to adapt your style to them really makes a lot of sense, Troy. Uh, David, when I interview coaches and when I came in here and met with the coaches for the first time, my go-to is this. My, I said, I use a snowplow analogy, right? Since I'm from Iowa. They don't know what that is here in Louisiana, but but my job is exactly that. My job is to get crap out of the way so you can succeed. Your job is to identify the crap. And and so and I, I tend to use different words, but I'll use crap today for for the purposes of a public podcast. But but, you know, that that's that's how we partner together. Uh, and it's what I think what I think I'm really good at is finding ways to get stuff out of the way so people can succeed. Uh, but I don't have the expertise of a football coach. I don't have the expertise that my marketing director has. I don't have the expertise that Chris has as the CFO. They've got to identify for me what I need to get out of their way. So it's really interesting that you say that because there's a there's a really famous saying that I think a lot of leaders use, which is uh, don't come to me with a problem without a solution. Right. And I think it's meant to deter complaining or bitching or whatever you want to say. Excuse my language. Um, and ultimately I, I think that sometimes if you ha- lead with that mentality of don't come to me with a problem without a solution, people hold on to the problems cause they don't know how to solve it. And I think as a leader, you kind of have to throw that mantra aside and say, even if you don't know what to do with this, come to me with that problem because it is my job to help solve some of those problems and help get those things out of the way so you can do your job. Well, that's, I mean, I think by in the former, if if you led that way, you know you're you're not going to advance your team. Right. You know, I the other thing I tell my team, part of my job, a big part of my job, is to get their plate filled to the point that they're prepared to make the next step in their career. Sometimes I don't know what that is, uh, and they have to again help help me identify it. But part of being able to make the next step in the career, you got to be a problem solver. I, I use the I use the baseball analogy. You know, you get in, you can get in to be the marketing director and be a one tool player and no marketing. Yeah. But if you want to be the, the associate AD for external, you better know marketing, development, ticketing. So you better be a three tool player and you want to go be the, the deputy athletic director. You better add a couple more tools until like a like a major league baseball player. You get to be a five tool player. You're playing in the big leagues and, and you know, the the ascension and knowing more and more. But if you don't give people help in problem solving. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, if I've been doing this 20 years, that's what I better be good at, right? Is problem solving. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's, let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, let's talk a little bit about time and saying no to things. I mean, obviously you're getting pulled in a hundred different directions. I can't even imagine. Um, so in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to, 
distractions, invitations, whatever it might be. And what new realizations and or approaches have helped to empower you to say no to some of those things? Do you have tips for our leaders? Uh, well, year one, you can't say no to anything. And a lot of times in year two, you can't say no to anything because you don't know what you can say no to. I think after a couple of years, you start to figure out what you can say no to, what you can delegate to other people. Uh, you know, I, I think, and I'll use public speaking for an example. You know, I, I, I'll speak 100 times a year, but I could speak 200 times a year. But my associate athletic directors, my deputy ADs, they're out there speaking now 15 times a year. That's a huge tool. It's a huge asset for them to be able to do it. Uh, a lot of it's just delegating and, and not necessarily saying no, because you want to say no as little as you can. But finding a way when people ask for things, finding a way to be able to accommodate them doesn't mean that I have to do it. It, it means building and, and advancing your team to the point where they can do some of those things uh, along the way. You know, um, I I also have gotten to the point where I try to involve my family as much as I can. And if I'm saying yes to something that's out of hours, uh, you know, and it, it, if it's something I can involve my family in. I'll ask, can my family come? Can my wife come? Can we, you know, that way I get a kind of do dual time. And, and, and one, people tend to think of the athletic director sometimes as, as, as a robot. And, and I, I have all the teams over to my house uh, at, every year because I want them to understand, like, I'm a, I have a wife, I have kids, I have a dog, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm a normal person. Uh, you know, I don't just sit up in the in the office with the door closed all the time. You know, uh, so so I, I try to involve others uh, as well because it allows me killing two birds with one stone is a cold way to say it. But but I can do the things I need to do for the job at the same time, be engaged with my family. And then my family understands better what it is that I do. And when that that time away, you know, that that, you know, I'm saying I'm going to be gone, you know, 20 percent of the week right now on this constitutional committee. They understand the value of it. And they understand why I'm doing it. Great, great answers. Um, let, let's move on to another one here. Uh, who is your favorite leader that you've ever worked for? And what were some of the elements of their leadership style that you incorporated into your own? You mentioned learning from others. You talked about empathy specifically. But maybe let's talk about your favorite leader and what were some of the elements of their leadership style that you brought into your own style? I would, I, I, I could single out a couple of, uh, you know, Bob Bowlesby, I, I think, is as good a leader as there is because he's candid and he listens. Uh, and, and, and when I say he's candid, he doesn't, doesn't spew a lot of word salad. Uh, he's got a point to, to most anything he says. But I learned from him, he put confidence in me when I hadn't done nothing to earn it. And I saw him do it to a, a lot of other people that were my age. Uh, I think back, he hi, he was hiring Eldon Miller. Eldon Miller, I think he just won the NIT at Ohio State or, or just come off the NIT Final Four at Ohio State, was leaving Ohio State. Eldon came to Northern Iowa to be the basketball coach. And and he brought Eldon in and and uh, was walking down the hall. I was doing something and, and he said, I got to take this call. He said, he said uh, I want you to meet Eldon Miller. And he left me alone with Eldon Miller, who I, you know, held like this you know, for 30 minutes and, and, and he came back and it was like, you know, he, he treated me, uh, like I was a peer when I wasn't a peer. And, and so I, 
I'm not saying I'm as good as Bob at that, but that's one of the things I try to do along the way. The other, the other person, uh, the man I went to work for at the, uh, the State High School Association, I went to work for him when he was 68. He retired at 80. Wow. He was a contemporary Walter Byers, and the, the high school organization was really modeled and structured much like Walter had structured the, the NCAA at that time. And so, which go, harkens back now to the Constitutional Committee because our constitutions were fairly similar. So I, I feel like I already have a little bit of background. But nonetheless, the, what I learned from him was I had to go sell things that I didn't believe in. Hmm. You know, when this the really door hard. was closed. Uh, yeah, when, when the door was closed and he made a decision, you know, it was my, my job as, as the number three, then the number two until I became the number one, was to go out and convince the populace, convince my constituents and tell them this was the way it's going to be, even though I didn't believe it or didn't believe in it. And that, that was a really hard lesson uh, to do, but it's one that I carry forward now. And I, uh, as I tell my staff, when the door is closed, we can argue and say whatever we want to say. At the end of the day, I have to make the decision, then you have to go operationalize it. And you may not believe it and believe in it, and you may not agree with it, but you can't dissent when, you get, when the door gets open. And I learned that working for him for 12 years, you know, Again, a man who was 68, and I was 21 when I started. Uh, you know, it, it was it was a lesson I never knew I needed. I, I but get, it comes into play every day. Yeah. So, so I've got to ask. I mean, I, I think generationally too, right? And I'm on the younger side of things. I mean, you're, you're a young guy yourself. Um, but I think, especially as this next generation that comes through Gen Z is so purpose focused. Uh, I think a lot of, if they're listening to this, I mean, it, I think it's really hard to try to sell something that you don't believe in. I mean, what, what helped you get through that? Because oftentimes in, in to, to your point, I mean, in athletic departments or in pro teams, the senior leadership makes a decision about something and the frontline people or the middle managers are the ones that actually have to get on the phones and deal with the ramifications of that decision. What, what were the mental models? I mean, what did you tell yourself? What was the self-talk in that situation that helped you overcome it and say, you know what? I, I got to do this anyway. I figured out that that uh, I had to be able to justify every decision that was made, whether I made it or whether I was representing that decision. I had to be able to to justify it in the newspaper tomorrow morning if asked. So, and and that was a lesson that was taught to me. I was a public relations and communications major, and and I'm close to a lot of folks in the media and. And there was a, a hatchet writer at the, at the time that was always looking for something. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he's, and you know, I kind of got caught with him, right? With not fully selling something I needed to do. He says, you need to convince everybody that you're right. And, and, and so when I print the paper tomorrow morning, people will understand that you just didn't arbitrarily make this decision. So then I had to figure out when it was something I, even though I didn't agree with, how, how do I sell this? How do I sell it to myself? Because I got to sell it to everybody else. Yeah. So how do I sell it to myself? And I had to make myself believe it. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a particular trick other than the fact that I just couldn't go out and talk because if I was not committed, everybody was going to know I wasn't committed. Yeah. Yeah. I almost had to be overly committed. And I'll tell you one other thing that, that, that I've done along the way that traces back to everything that 
that I would tell, and I tell everybody, this is what they should do, is officiate. Officiate? And, like, like and this may sound what goofy. You, you mean like refer, refereeing? Refereeing. Kind of okay. I refereed. I refereed. I refereed basketball and football at the high school, then the collegiate level, all the way up to Division One. And I quit when I was 32 because I could no longer do the job yeah. and the officiating at the same time. But you have to convince people that you're making the right judgment and you're in front of out in front of everybody. And that's, you know, you see everybody do all these. You know what? You're trying to convince everybody you're right. Yeah. I don't know how many times I blew the whistle. And I didn't know if I was right or not, but I, by God, I had to convince everybody that I was right. You're so right. And then sometimes I knew I was wrong. I knew I was wrong, but I had to forget that pretty quick because five seconds later, I was going to blow the whistle again and I was going to have to be right. So you couldn't let your failures, you know, linger. You couldn't continue to think about them. And then when you got in front of the coach and you'd really screwed something up and he said, doggone it, Troy, you screw this up, blank, blank, blank. You can't say, no, I didn't. Sometimes you got to say, I know, and I won't do it again. You got to be honest about your, your mistakes. You also have to look at things from a 30,000 foot level. You have no biases. It, you know, officiating, everybody thinks officials are biased. They are not biased. They might not be capable and competent sometimes. And I'll say that because I was one of them, but they are biased. And to, to be able to assess things, Boom, 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 without a bias. And and knowing that you're going to be wrong sometimes and knowing you've got to convince people sometimes and knowing that you've got to know more about the situation than everybody else that's involved. It is the greatest thing because I apply it in my life every day. And, and uh, I was taught, you know, great situation in officiating. I was working with a guy that, was a, a final four level basketball official. And I was never at that level. And we had a situation where, you know, I did the block and he did the charge thing. Yep. And he just kind of looked at me and waved me off and went over it. And he said, you know, he said, if you would have, if you would have sold it, if you would have convinced me that you knew you were right, I would have let you had that call, but you didn't convince me that you were right. And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. So sometimes even, even if you don't know, you got to convince people you're right, it, which goes back to this leadership thing and goes back to Wayne Cooley. I had to convince people, even though I wasn't sure, I had to convince people that was the right thing. It is. Troy, That's a long winded answer, but. But it's so it's, it's so good. Yeah. It's probably going to be my favorite part of this podcast because I, I had a self-realization as you were talking about it. I refereed for a long, long time as well. I refereed youth soccer, adult league soccer and. I mean, yeah, to your, to your point, there's nothing that makes you sell it harder than being in front of a group of youth sports parents, right, where they're just so passionate about their, the call and it's the end of the world. If not, a kid's not going to get a college scholarship because you blew that foul. And uh, you're right. Our, yep. our, our team jokes with me a lot that I have irrational confidence a lot of times in that I go into situations and I might not know what I'm doing, but I certainly act like I do, or I really go into a situation believing that, hey, no matter what's going to happen here, we're going to come out on top. And I think part of that comes from, you're right, I, I, I just had the self-realization. I think a lot of it is all those years of refereeing where it didn't matter if you fully knew whether it was a foul or not. Once you blow that whistle, you're, in, you're committed, you're in. And I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a great That's lesson. Right. Uh, I, I think there's another, there's another heuristic, too, that I, I would add on is, you know, something that we we talk about with our clients is we're working behind the scenes on processes and communicating decisions. And 
there, there's a phrase that we always say, which is you got to be able to communicate the why behind a painful policy. And I, I think that ties into this as well of if, if you don't have a story backed up as to why you made the decision that you did, you're going to get called out. And by the way, maybe you're just making that decision arbitrarily if you don't have a good reason why behind it. And then right. at that point, you got to go back and rethink and look at, take a look at that process or that policy that you've got in place. And I, I use this with, with my staff every time there's a, a decision that has some could be controversial. Can you justify it in the newspaper tomorrow if yeah. you had to? Yeah. And people might not agree with it, but as long as there's a damn good answer there and, and a justification for why you made the decision, make it. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean people are going to agree with it. People don't agree with, you know, if, if you make a decision everybody agrees with, it's probably the wrong one anyway. Yep. But it, it's that that last thought before you make a decision. Can I justify this? If I have to be totally accountable to people that don't know me and don't know the situation, I have to be totally accountable to them tomorrow. Will they understand why this is the right decision? Love it. All right. Well, I know that newspaper thing. It's it's, it's, it's it's, no, it's such a good thing for people to take away from this episode. Uh, Troy, we could go for forever on this. I feel like we're just getting started, but I know your phone is probably getting blown up with people calling to complain about uh, uh, or or give you their thoughts and feedback on the the stadium policy. But uh, any any final words of advice for our senior leaders that are are listening to the episode right now? Uh. Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to practice delegation here. I'm going to take those messages and spread them out to my senior staff and say this. This is the other part of the game. You know, there not, you go. not just the fun part in the locker room. Uh, you know, I, I think. Convincing people to do things that it's outside their comfort zone. Uh, you know, I. I remember when I was growing up, I would always ask to do something that I wasn't qualified to do. And I was told no more often than not, but then I was told yes. And then it opened up another door and it opened up another set of experiences. And, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, we forget everybody gets burdened down with tasks, but, but what are you doing to, to get outside your comfort zone and do something that you haven't done to get your plate ready for take, to take the next step in your career. Uh, and, and that's on me. As the leader, a lot of times, because sometimes people don't think uh, or don't volunteer to get out of their comfort zone. Sometimes you have to take them out of their comfort zones. And, and I think reminding whether it's you getting out of yours or you taking somebody out of theirs, comfort zones are a really bad place to be in intercollegiate athletics uh, because you, you don't get anywhere. You just don't get anywhere. And everybody else. You know, this is a competitive world. We're all type A people. Everybody else that you're competing against, whether it's in the American Athletic Conference or it's in Division One or wherever it's at, everybody else is doing something to get better and grow. And if you don't, even for one day, you fall a step behind and you can afford to fall a step behind. If you go to your knees, it's almost impossible to get back up. So don't fall to your knees. Uh, that's, that's the edge I think we have in our department. That's the edge I try to tell everybody. We, we may not have the biggest budget. It's harder to get into school. Our facilities may not be what somebody else has. But you know what we do have? We, we, are, we are stepping forward and chasing every single day. We're doing things that we didn't do yesterday every single day. And not everybody's doing that. And that's what our edge is going to be. No, oh, I, I love it. I, and I, I, I can testify to that firsthand. I mean, when we worked together a couple of years ago, 
on the project where we were kind of surveying the the larger New Orleans market to find out how they consumed entertainment and what how were they spending discretionary income. I mean, that is not a project that a lot of school, uh, most schools would be satisfied just surveying their season ticket members, if that. And you guys said, no, we want to get better and grow that fan base. And you guys are constantly doing things like that, that are innovative to, to move the organization forward because you realize you can't sit on your laurels. Um, well, Troy, it's been a pleasure having you yep. on the show. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people reach you or follow along your journey uh, as you're dropping wisdom and knowledge uh, throughout your career? Well, uh, obviously, I'm a Twitter guy. That's the only thing. That's the there only it is. thing I do. But you know, it's funny. Uh, what's your What's your I, Twitter I, handle? That's where I get my news. Plug Plug your Twitter Twitter handle. T. It's Tulane underscore AD. Uh, I think you know. Sometimes <laughs> my staff will change it. One thing I will say: my nobody gets to post on my Twitter account, and no one gets to respond to my email but me. Uh, and sometimes people delegate those things. Those things don't get delegated because uh, that's, you know, that's where you get to you get to define the person you're going to be. And I don't want to, you know, somebody else to define, you know, me in that way. But Twitter's it, man. That's where I get my news. Uh, I don't watch much TV. I don't watch much sports. Uh, you know, it's when, when it's not sports at, at work, it's uh, family. So, uh, uh, you know, that's again, that's how I keep up. Um, you know, I, I talk to two or three people a week, uh, that want to get into college athletics and, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of things I tell them at the beginning, but I, Hey, somebody wants to, I I'll talk to anybody. I would love to, to talk one-on-one with anybody about anything. And I, I do quite a little bit of that. So people should feel free to reach out to me, uh, at, at Tulane, if there's anything they want to talk about, or if there's any way they want to get connected, you know, I, I go back, you know, I, I feel like, you know, how does how did I get to Tulane in the first place? I got to Tulane because I'd connected with a lot of people and, and I'd learned from a lot of people and and uh, they all helped open doors that got me here. Uh, so, you know, I I kind of want to do the same thing. I want to I want to help get people's doors open so they can get where they want to go. Well, we will plug your Twitter handle in the show notes as well so that people can follow along and, and message you with any thoughts or questions. But, Troy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much, man. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it very much. Good to talk to you again, David. We'll talk soon, Troy. Thanks. Today's episode is brought to you by Checked In, a new tool in your operations toolkit that helps you understand exactly who's working in your venue. It's one of the tech products the engagement team helped create during the pandemic. And with it, we set out to solve some of the key problems sports and entertainment operators face every day. The tool does a few things, from helping you gain more labor data to operate more efficiently and mitigate risk. And it also saves you time and headaches by automating the horrible check-in and credential approval process that has existed for so long. But my favorite part of Checked In, hands down, is that it's tied to a digital learning platform. Now, historically, training game day staff has taken place before the beginning of a season. But how do you train the workers that start mid-season? Or the workers that just come in to work the big games, the big events. Well, this tool solves that issue. With Checked In, you can create and push training to your teammates digitally, and you can require employees to watch training videos before they're able to physically check in to work. Checked In has begun rolling out at some of the biggest stadiums in the country. If you want to see how it works and get a demo, head to checkedin.app. That's C H. 
E-C-K-D-I-N.app. We'll make it easy and link to it in the show notes. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.